I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to look at the last third of that chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4. Actually, uh, maybe a bit more than a third, but the last portion. Peter has been instructing us in the behavior and the attitudes that are appropriate as we uh, draw near to the end, as we draw near to the time of judgment and the renewal of all things. And he reminds us in this passage that we still live in a place of fallenness. We still live in a place of brokenness, but not as those without hope. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen. People of God beloved in Christ, suffering is hard to endure. Always. I mean, obviously, we greatly prefer pleasant experiences. And we do, when we do endure suffering and trials, we tend to want to know why. We want to we make sense of the suffering. We want to see where it's going to benefit us in the end. And when we can't determine the purpose, when we can't see the value of it, we tend to get as testy as old Job, arguing with well-intentioned friends, Proclaiming our innocence, demanding our day in court as though God was somehow, as though God somehow owed us an explanation. However, in this world with all of its brokenness and sin and sorrow, in this world God's word is very clear that we will face, we will endure times of suffering. There's no question about it. We'll endure suffering at the hand of Unbelievers who hate all that we stand for will endure suffering because of the simple brokenness of this world. Sometimes our suffering will arise from our own foolishness. Suffering is inevitable in this world. The only questions are, what will be the nature of your suffering? How much suffering will you have to endure? And how will you respond to your suffering? And that's the question we need to consider this morning, that's really the important question. How will you endure the time of suffering that comes upon you? That's important because our response to the suffering that we endure, whether it's a small suffering like a cold, a small temporary illness, or a big suffering when we're dragged into court or taken into jail because of what we confess... Our response to that suffering can either deepen our relationship with the Lord 
or set us at odds with Him. Our response can enable us to serve the Lord by proclaiming Him in a a powerful way or can dishonor Him. Much rests, much matters in how we respond to our suffering. And therefore in this text, we're encouraged to expect that when that suffering comes, and it will for each one of us, when that suffering comes, we're not alone. We're not abandoned. God will provide for us. God will strengthen and equip us for all of the suffering that He has ordained. And He being sovereign, He has ordained everything that we will experience. God equips His saints for the suffering that they must encounter. That is our simple theme. And the first point that this text draws out is that we should expect the suffering that tests us. Notice how this text begins. Beloved. That's an important preface for the instruction he's about to give us. Beloved. We need to recognize that no matter what we face, no matter what we endure or undergo, we are the ones who are beloved of God. He has made us through the suffering of His Son. He has made us His sons and daughters. He loves us. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. When you're laying in bed sick as a dog, or worse, when you're in the hospital, absolutely exhausted and in pain and alone, or when it seems like everyone is against you, when the people you trusted have betrayed you, you feel really alone. You wonder, what have I done to deserve this? And it's essential that you remember that through Christ, through your faith in Christ, you are the beloved of God. If He loves you, He won't allow pointless suffering to afflict you. He's going to use it all. He's going to, He has ordained it all, essentially for your good. It's essential from the start that we remember that we are the beloved. And as the beloved who have been instructed by God's Word, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. We have the Bible. The Bible is exceedingly honest about all that God's people have endured, all that they've faced throughout history. And so we know... We know how this world treats the followers of God, don't we? This world is not kind to them. Of the twelve apostles, one betrayed Jesus. But of the remaining eleven, only one died a natural death of old age. The rest died at the hands of God's enemies. Nor was that a strange thing. Read the end of Hebrews 11 where it talks about how Terribly, God's people have suffered, and yet, and yet, through their faith, they were able to recognize that God loved them, that God cared for them, that God was using it all for their good and for His glory. So do not be surprised, even though the trial is fiery, even though it hurts, even though it burns, even though it's a struggle, do not be surprised, recognizing it as a test. 
fiery trial that comes upon you to test you. That's not to say that God is setting a trap to see if you'll fall prey. No, no. He's using the word test there the way, you, the way a, a metalsmith would, would test the ore of precious metal. The silver and gold that we find in jewelry, it doesn't come out of the ground that way, does it? It comes out of the ground as ore. A rock that's filled with gold or with silver, but also with lesser materials. And the way that he purifies it and makes it into something that's beautiful and glorious is he heats it up. And through that heat, the impurities are separated from the precious metal and they're able to be removed. And that precious metal is able to be refined and and made into something beautiful and glorious and useful. And that's what God is doing to his beloved ones through their trials. He's purifying us. He's separating us from all of the impurities and the sins and the brokenness. He's removing all of that and he's making us more holy, more Christ-like, more glorious in his sight. So don't be surprised at that. Recognize that he has ordained that for your good, for your blessing and for his glory. But that brings us to the second point that we see here. We're to expect that suffering that tests us. But when it comes, where do we look? When it comes, how do we endure? Well, when it comes, the main portion of this text shows us we are to respond by exalting the Savior who sustains us. Peter's counsel for those who suffer seems a bit strained. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, To say the least, that's counterintuitive. I mean, we spend so much time and effort trying to avoid suffering. How can we then rejoice when we enter into that suffering? But but Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And that's what the apostles did when they suffered. When the apostles were teaching in the temple about Jesus and they got brought before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin rebuked them publicly and then had them beaten, what did they do in response? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. In light of that, we need to consider well Peter's urging that we rejoice amid our suffering. The first reason that he gives us for rejoicing is that in our suffering we share in the suffering of Christ. Now that's not to say that we make any contribution to our salvation, not at all. But our suffering shows that we are united to Jesus. Our suffering reflects His suffering, revealing it to the world. Our suffering testifies that we truly belong to Him. What an honor that is to be associated so intimately with our Savior. I mean, consider, you're slandered as a do-gooder because you won't go into work on the Lord's Day. They're like, oh, well, aren't you the Holy One? But they're not really upset with you. They're upset that your allegiance isn't to them. 
They're upset that you're given the option of resting rather than continuing to strive day by day by day. They're upset with their sin, with their circumstance. Or you're taken advantage of because folks know that you won't seek revenge. But in, take, in being taken advantage of, you're showing them Christ. You're showing them His faithfulness, His long-suffering, His mercy. So rejoice to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Celebrate to be able to reveal His character. And meanwhile, be confident you also will share in Jesus' glory, which is the second reason for rejoicing. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. When His glory is revealed is on that last great day when the trumpet sounds and the dead shall rise and all who have ever lived are gathered before the throne of Christ. On that day, every deed, every word, every thought will be revealed and all that Jesus has accomplished will be unveiled and how we will celebrate our joy will be unbridled because we'll recall the promise that we heard just a bit ago from Romans chapter 8 that says the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him because we've suffered here below with Christ For the sake of Christ, on that day when He comes back, we will be glorified with Him. He will be seen in all of the fullness of His glory. And He will gather us and say, you are the beloved ones. You are my brothers and sisters. The sons and daughters of God the Father. And all our sin, all our defilement, all our brokenness will be wiped away and we will shine like stars in the heavens at Christ's right hand. That is the promise. And we can know that that's our promise when we're suffering alongside of Christ even here and now. In fact, the apostle says you are blessed in your suffering. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now this isn't the first time that Peter has suggested people will speak ill of us. In chapter 3, he said, we will be slandered and men will revile your good behavior. At the start of this chapter, he pointed out that people will speak evil of us when we don't join them in their sin. And we know that Jesus himself said that they will revile us and call us evil. Yet we are blessed because their slander reveals that the Holy Spirit rests upon us. They are slandering us because we're not one of them. They slandered and spoke evil of Jesus because they looked on Him and they saw what they were meant to do and have refused in their rebellion. They looked on Him and they saw what they were designed to do, reflecting the image of God. But they hate God. And they hate everything that reflects God. And so when they look on you and they see the character of God beginning, yes, in the midst of your sin, truly, but beginning to shine forth despite your sin, beginning to demonstrate what you will become, they hate you. They hate that reminder. They hate that unavoidable truth that one day they will have to stand before God and answer why they didn't do likewise. So when they speak ill of you, recognize that you are blessed. 
Because you're living and acting in a way that demonstrates the Holy Spirit is at work within you. You're living and acting in a way that demonstrates you're being transformed even now into what you were created to be. But what we must never do is allow ourselves to deserve to suffer. Let none of you, he says, suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Peter knows there's a temptation when we deserve to suffer to try to act like a martyr. Kids, you know what I mean by that, right? You just got busted for doing exactly what mom said not to do. So she takes away a privilege or she gives you a spanking and and you act like it's such an injustice. It's so unfair, but it's not because you deserved it, right? Peter says, don't do that. Instead, live in such a way as to never deserve punishment, to never deserve suffering. When you feel the temptation to do something that's wrong, to say something cruel about someone else just to get a laugh, or to steal something just because you don't have the money for it and you want it, or to lie in order to take credit for something that you didn't do. When you're tempted to do that, remember that your behavior reflects on Christ and pray for His power to refuse. That's hard. Because everything in our old nature is calling out to just do it. It won't matter. It'll be okay. But 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that no temptation has overcome, overtaken you except that which is common to man. And the Lord always provides a way of escape. But He reveals that way of escape only as we ask for it. Only as we pray for eyes to see. So if you ask for the way to escape, if you ask for insight into how we can avoid, He'll show you. And remember, you're united to Jesus So not only does what you do reflect on Him, but whenever you pray, He's praying for you. But on the other hand, when you suffer unjustly, not because of something wrong that you've done, but because the world hates the one to whom you belong, don't give in to shame. The world will strive to shame you. When you refuse to use your business to celebrate sin and the government imposes fines against you, as they just did in Grand Rapids to a new wedding venue that when approached by the government said, no, we will not allow homosexual weddings to be celebrated here because that would celebrate something that God hates. And so they fined them and they're trying to close them down. And... The media is doing everything they can to shame them. And society is doing what they can to shame them and to tell them that they're bigots and they're narrow-minded and they're hateful. They're not hateful. They're actually loving. They're trying to keep people from celebrating that which God hates. They're trying to show people that, you know what, there is a standard that's unchanging and God will enforce that. That's the most loving thing we can do. And they're not being hateful about it. They're not being bigoted about it. But the world will strive to shame them. And they'll strive to shame you when you stand for God, when you stand on His Word, when you refuse to give in to the ways of wickedness. Don't give in to it. Don't listen to Satan's voice. Don't believe the lies they speak about you. Instead, remember, you are the beloved ones. You are the ones whom God cherishes. You're not perfect, but you're delightful in the eyes of God because of Christ. 
And remember that what God says is true, even though every man says something else. And as you exalt the Savior who equips you, who strengthens you to endure, you need to strive to endure the struggle that refines you. That's the last thing we see here. But it's an essential bit of wisdom. Verse 17 says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Declaring that judgment begins at the household of God is both a a reminder and a warning. It's a reminder that all men must one day stand before God's throne. No one will escape answering for how they live. That if judgment begins with the people of God, surely no one will be exempt. Now, of course... As Christians, we know that when we stand before the judgment throne, our forgiveness will be declared. Christ will declare, this one is mine. And the Father will look down and say, well, look at that. All his sins have been paid for. He's righteous in my sight. She's holy. Bring her in. But it will be evident on that day that we're not coming in. We're not being received because of what we've done. It's because of Jesus. It's because we're clothed with Him. It's because He did everything for us. So all men will be judged. And for Christians, it will be evident. Our best works were insufficient. We stand before God only and entirely because of Christ And what a warning that is for unbelievers. If even Christians must stand before the heavenly judge, what will come of those who rejected him? What will come of those who slandered Christ? How will they stand who devoted themselves to hating God? If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Where is their hope? The answer is clear, isn't it? They have no hope. As long as they are standing in themselves... As long as they are trusting in themselves, they have no hope. They have no help. How horrific. The only wise thing for them is to humble themselves and repent and seek life in Christ. But for us, this is a comfort. To be sure, what we read here humbles us. The righteous is scarcely saved. Nothing that we do can even begin to make us acceptable in the sight of God. We're saved only and entirely through Christ. However, the flames of God's judgment will reveal we do, in fact, belong to Christ. We've been joined to Jesus. We've been cleansed from every work that deserves judgment. What a blessing that is. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. If you know even now that on that last day Christ will claim you as His and you can know that if you're trusting for God's favor not in what you have done but in the poured out blood of Christ which covers your sin if you're trusting for eternal life Not in the good that you have accomplished, but in the body of Christ being broken to pay the penalty that you deserved. 
and in the righteous life of Christ being imputed to you, if that's your hope, if that's your confidence, then you can be confident that all of your suffering is according to God's will. All of your suffering is meant to refine and strengthen you, and you can push through that suffering by seeking to do good, by seeking to love and serve the Lord. That's why He gives us the Lord's Supper, to remind us this is your nourishment. It's not a small thing that it's a meal. Meals are what nourish us. They're what strengthen us. Not just to live, but to work, to act, to be productive. Because the Lord wants us to see, I have saved you. I have done everything necessary. Now go and live in a way that shows your mind. Now go and live in a way that will direct people to me. And we can do that even in the midst of our suffering. Jesus washed the feet of his apostles, including Judas. Including Peter, who soon would deny him three times. And when on the seashore, Jesus walked up to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know I love you. What did Jesus say? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. And so he says to us, do you love me? You've sinned. You've failed. But do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Yes, I trust in you, Lord. Then he says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, do my work, show my glory to the world. And as we do that, we are refined. We are weaned off the ways of the world and the desires of the flesh. And more and more we will come to know and love and serve the one who saved us. And that suffering will be the instrument that he uses to show us what really, truly matters. It's not the things that we own. It's not the work that we, uh, the, the career that we build. It's Christ. It's always Christ. It's only Christ. It's the glory of Christ. Let us, indeed, expect the trials, the suffering that will test us. But in the midst of that suffering, let us strive to exalt the Savior who sustains us. And then by His power, we must endure the struggle that refines us, looking always to Him, pointing always to Him, knowing that He is the one who will bring us safely through unto eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and we praise You that you provide precisely what we need as we need it unto your glory. We ask that you would equip us for the suffering that we must face and that you would remind us as we face it that you're using it to refine us and through us to bring glory to your name. All this we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, and as we prepare to partake together of the Lord's Supper, uh, let's stand and sing together number 131. Number 131, in Thee, O Lord, I put my trust, we'll sing stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 5.